Mini episode 1129 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode number 1129. This is FDH managing partner Rick Morris here. And we've got one of our favorite folks coming back on the show here who we have had on over the years. Good friend of the show, editor and proprietor over at epolitics.com, Colin Delaney, coming on to talk uh, in this particular segment here about Ross Perot because uh, there, there is a lot of insight that he has had uh, from working in politics in the state of Texas over a period of time, observing the man's career, and being able to speak on uh, how he legitimately in some ways made lasting changes uh, to American politics. Maybe not in all the ways we thought at the time, but uh, it's definitely uh, the most successful third-party candidate effort in uh, recent decades uh, with the 1992 presidential cycle. 1996, not so much, but uh, 92 is what he's best remembered for politically. So we bring in, like I said, good friend of the show, Colin Delaney, to talk about the life and the legacy of Ross Perot. Welcome back to the show, Colin. How are you doing today? Oh, howdy, Rick. Uh, let me just start it off with a good yee-haw, yee-haw. Uh, we're talking <laughs> about a Texan, so yes. got to go back to my roots here. Yes. That always is... a pleasure to join you, man. Thank you. Always a pleasure to have you in here. These are always uh, very fun and enlightening conversations. And uh, again, uh, I am given to understand uh, from uh, production here that uh, you have some particular sort of insight as to how Ross Perot operated uh, via an old boss of yours back in Texas and somebody who'd been on the inside working with Ross Perot. So tell us about that, please. Yeah, well, um, I guess my start in Texas politics in the early 90s, 1991, and my boss was a state legislator from East Texas who had been a, um, a salesman with Perot at IBM back in the 60s. So, and even when I was working for him 20-plus years later, I think I only once saw him in jeans. Was in a, a blue suit generally, or gray suit and tie. Every time I saw him, wow! And that was a hold. That was a holdover from the IBM days, right? But uh, yeah, he and uh, he and Perot were very good salesmen together. Perot came with the idea for EDS. Um, uh, he offered Elton Elton Bomer, my boss, the chance to go to EDS at the very beginning, get in on the ground floor. But Bomer had grown up, you know. Uh, poor, basically, and had you know made his way in the world, and he was cautious because of it. He was uh, he didn't want to take the risk, and you know when I was working for him twenty five years later, he was still kind of kicking himself about that one. Yeah, I can imagine because very few of us have the chance to be a part of something like that at the the ground floor, and I'm sure he's not the only person to have said that to Ross Perot and uh, to have uh, to whatever degree regretted it subsequently. An amazing career in business. It did not turn out to be, in the long run, an amazing career in politics because he peaked very early 
and then it was kind of all downhill from there. There's a lot of comparisons that have been made, and, and again, the media is going to be the media, so a lot of them are going to be lazy and surface level between uh, Perot and somebody that uh, he has thought in some ways to have spawned subsequently, Donald Trump. There are a few surface similarities there, of course, both being billionaires and uh, maybe a handful of issues that they might have agreed on, probably not too many, but at least a handful of them. But the thin skin and the ability to sort of go off the deep end there, you know, anything that Trump has done was sort of prefigured by the Republicans conspired to destroy my daughter's wedding. So there are a few surface similarities there, Colin. i got to admit this, as cynical as I am about the media, there's a handful of things that are where one is reminiscent of the other. You know, and as, as you said, though, when you start getting into dress code, rectitude, well, Trump always wears suits, but personal rectitude, certainly that is yeah. a thing where the long-married and faithful Ross Perot has nothing in common with Donald Trump. So it's a complicated bag as far as what they did and didn't have in common, I think. Well, yeah, uh, you know, you, you draw some, some interesting parallels there. Um, you know, uh, another wealthy Texan who ran for office around the same time, Clayton Williams, basically fell uh, fell victim to his own mouth in what was an early Me Too, Me Too movement in 19, or a moment in 1990. Um, but uh, so you can compare one wealthy Texan to another in that way. <laughs> if you want to go down that axis, right? Yeah. But uh, you know, I think um, you look back at Perot, um, and there is a foreshadowing of a lot of the same appeals that Trump made because Ross Perot's, you know, political agenda was uh, anti-deficit and anti-trade. Um, and that, if you take out the anti-deficit, well, let's just put it this way. I think we have found over the years that for, except for the D.C. policy one types, anti-deficit is very often code for I don't want to spend money on anything that's going to help someone who's not me, right? So um, that Trump has definitely tapped into that feeling (laughs) among a lot of people who would have been Democratic voters then. But we also have to think back to the difference in the the difference in the electorate then, right? It was significantly whiter. Uh, The uh, World War II generation that was, uh, were Roosevelt liberal voters, there were still quite a few of them around. Um, the boomers weren't as conservative as they are now. Things were a lot more ju- a lot more jumbled then. But uh, Perot seemed to appeal, like when they did exit polling, he seemed to appeal. He, he uh, it was never no one was ever really able to establish whether he swung the election to Clinton or not. But the polls that I saw, the analysis that I saw, it always seemed like he was drawing people kind of evenly from both sides, um, like not hurting Bush any more than hurting Clinton. Uh, so. You know, in, in that sense, you know, that that white working and middle class that Perot was appealing to then, uh, often in the Midwest, um, and that's one reason the trade message was resonating, um, those folks have now completed the migration to the Republican Party largely. Oh, perhaps that's the difference. Okay. All right. Uh, here, I'm laying a thesis on you right now. That's okay. percent Maybe one difference between Perot and Trump is that potential Perot voters are split between the two parties. By now, or a good chunk of them, by now, that same demographic has completed migrating to the Republican Party. So Trump was able to move in and take it over. That's, what do you think? Well, that's, that, that's a very good point. And I will say this, too. 
you know, a subject that is very near and dear to my heart issue-wise, when you're talking about trade and, and fair trade, is that you, that is one of those rare kind of subjects where the political spectrum is a circle, not a straight line, and, and where you have some of these oddball lefty-righty alliances. I, I got a very good book a couple of years ago that uh, Ralph Nader wrote about left-right alliances, and as somebody who feels the way that I do on things like the NSA, these are things where, again, and Thomas Massey is one of my favorite uh, people in Congress, and he has pursued a lot of left-right stuff uh, on there on some of these issues. Perot is like the one guy, right? He's the one guy who sort of stood for this on a national level because the Reform Party came out of his movement. One of the figures uh -huh. in that was Pat Buchanan, who would often work with the likes of Ralph Nader and some of these guys on trade issues. Pat Buchanan, who would later go on to endorse Donald Trump. So trade, I think, is the strongest link, you've, and you've identified it, between the two well, figures. trade and perhaps nativism, because when you say Pat Buchanan, the first thing that comes to my mind is not trade. The first thing that comes to my mind is nativism. And, you know, let's not, you know, I'm from Texas, you know, and much of, much of, many times in my life the word Mexican has been used as an insult, right? Yeah. Uh, I have no illusions about how uh, a lot of white Texans feel about um, uh, uh, Mexico and people from the South. And uh, that was definitely part of, uh, a part of one of the factors that was shaping how people felt about NAFTA, right? If it was just with Canada, it might have been completely innocuous. Because it was Canada and Mexico, uh, it changed the equation, I think. And again, uh, I mean, Pat Buchanan, absolutely nativist. Trump, absolutely nativist, as we have seen this week. Well, yeah, yeah, and that's where, uh, again, but but me speaking as somebody who, again, you're going to snicker when I say this, where I draw a distinction between Buchanan and Trump. Uh, look, I'm somebody who has long, because of his foreign policy positions and because of uh, his trade positions, and yes, because he's a social conservative, I, I've long admired no. Pat Buchanan. So I'm not somebody who sees any of the bad in him that a lot of people do. I'm just going to, you know, cards on the table. Okay. Uh, I, I've All long right. described myself as a paleocon. Pat Buchanan is sort of the godfather of paleoconservatism. So, you know, I hear what you're saying. I'm just, I don't co-sign on any of the implications of what you're saying. But, you know, I... I, I I got to be honest with you. you. You may laugh when I say this. That's one of the first times I've heard that about trade and that Mexico. I mean, I'm not dismissing your theory out of hand because I'm hearing it for the first time. But the thought that trade with Mexico and kind of a nativist kind of a thing there, I've never really linked that to the trade message, nor have I really heard that before. So I'll give you points for giving me something I hadn't really considered previously. Because people look and see. Yeah, I haven't thought about it in a long time. Uh -huh. Because, you know, like, when that was happening, I was working in Texas politics, Okay, right? yeah. So, yeah, and uh, uh, I guess that was, whoa, whoa, uh, when was the fight over NAFTA, about 94 or so? Yeah. Yeah, um, so we were out of session, so we were following national politics like crazy. And, uh, you know, plenty of my friends there were Republicans, and some of them quite conservative. So, yeah, you've got a range. But, uh, no, I mean, to me, where, you know, with trade, you know, there was a tremendous, with NAFTA, there was a tremendous missed opportunity where the, the liberal, like the, you know, the New York bond trader liberal establishment, right? Right. The, uh, you know, the, uh, what was his name, Reuben Clinton's um, oh, uh, Robert Treasury Rubin. Secretary. Yeah. Robert Rubin, right, he's straight out of Wall Street, an incredibly smart guy, but, uh, you know, saw the world through those times. Um, 
to that, those Democrats, just as to you know the many uh, Republican donating billionaires, um, the the free trade was going to be an overwhelming good. Uh, if we spent a little bit of money and a lot of words, we could have helped a lot of people who were going to be displaced by that. But because of this complacency, um, to me as a Democrat, that is a missed opportunity for Democrats. Uh, in the Clinton years, when they had the opportunity, they could have really pushed to help workers. Um, in the Bush years, they could not. And the Bush administration dismantled all of that. And by the time Obama came around, well, they had other problems to solve. So, yeah, we could have, uh, you know, some of the, the, the sentiment that's out, because of legitimate economic pain in these towns where manufacturing's gone away, right? Are there things that we could have done to uh, make that better? Uh, absolutely, and we failed. Yeah, I would agree with that. There are definitely things that woulda, coulda, shoulda been done. And again, Perot's biggest issue was uh, the deficit. And of course, uh, he unfortunately lived long enough to see it become what twenty-two trillion or whatever it is now. It's kind of quaint uh, to think of what it was when he was railing about it in '92. But uh, it's only ever gotten worse and worse. So he lost the war on that one. But just to bring the whole thing full circle, I, yeah. I want to kind of put this out there and give you a, a thought that I had had. This was sort of an impulse that I had had a long time ago, and, and, and not anything that I would necessarily be in favor of from my point of view, because okay. I, I, I sort of, I share a lot of the contempt that you have for mushy centrism politics, because uh, I, I, I feel like it doesn't have principle. But I'm going to tell you something, and I had Perot in mind when I was thinking of this. I had a thought in my mind. This was like, I think, the Sunday after Hurricane Katrina in uh, 05. And I, I think it was on one of the morning shows, I think McCain and or Giuliani, I think maybe they'd been on together. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, if the, because if, as disgusted as everybody was with things in the country, I remember thinking at the time, if those guys went on TV and said, you know, we're going to run as independents in 2008, maybe we'll flip a coin and see who's on top uh, and who's <laughs> vice president. But I felt like that was their moment right there because... Inevitably, in this country, things ebb and flow. Republicans are up, then Democrats are up. Like we go back to the other one because that's the natural state of things. You rebel against the party in power when things are going poorly from your perspective. But I think Perot showed that people are crying out for something outside of that. And I remember thinking that who will ever know if I'm right or I'm wrong. But I remember thinking that they missed an opportunity because those men both had a lot of stature in late 2005. And had they done something like that in the parole mold, I've always thought they could have been successful in 2008. We'll never know. Yeah, here's the thing, though. Um, in the 200, I guess the modern party system really started to take shape like 200-odd years ago, right? Right. Um, every successful third party has co-opted a, uh, uh, a major party. It's just easier that way. And there's generally not that much difference. I mean, McCain would have run as a moderate Democrat or a moderate Republican. Right. And there are a lot of us who think Obama ran as a moderate Republican. <laughs> you know, certainly uh, 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 Obama looks a lot more like Eisenhower than uh, Bernie Sanders. <laughs> uh, but uh, the um, yeah, it's an interesting question. I'm just skeptical that you know that sense of wanting a third party to me is just more like uh, you know, gosh darn it, I hate my job and I want to quit and I'd rather do blah blah blah. You know, uh -huh. the thing is that part—that part—and I'm thinking about this right now for the first time. I'm sure 
this is PolySci 101, but um, parties serve a lot of functions, right? And one of the things they do is uh, help different factions. And that can be, you know, anything from, you know, a, a, a labor union or, you know, a, an ethnic group or whatever. It can be the people in one region of the state versus the people in another region of the state. But they provide for those people to come together and arrive at a rough consensus, right? Yeah. And the third-party movements are almost always built around a personality. And a personality is not a structure. I mean, we've seen it. I was just actually, I was just talking with a, uh, I was just at the Netroots Nation conference, and uh, I was talking with a friend of mine who had worked for uh, Organizing for America, which is what the Obama email list became. And we're comparing it to Bernie Sanders's follow-on organization to Howard Dean's uh, it's now Democracy for America. And over time, as the, you know, the personality that they were founded around, oh, Wesley Clark's another good example. He had a functioning organization for several years after his role. But over time, they all fade as the memory of that person fades, mm-hmm. right? So um, I'm very skeptical about personality-driven um, third-party movements. I think the closest thing we've seen to it is what Trump just did, right? Because he, I, you know, I think he was a, just an utter liar when he said we're going to drain the swamp and kick the special interests out. But it appealed to that same kind of uh, he's with us, he's not with the big guys mentality that Perot went to, right? So there you go, pull it back all the way full circle. Um, so yeah, if you want a third party. I think what you need to do is take over one of these two, and Trump just did. Yeah, and I, I'll agree with you as we come full circle on this. That, that's exactly what happened, that the Republican Party, uh, by and large, I think has been replaced by Trump's brand. So, yeah, that's that's what you do. You go in, you take it over, and you uh, subsume it to your will. And uh, in the next uh, segment that we do, spoiler alert, we'll be talking about presidential politics. But, uh, Colin, it's been good to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you, everybody, for joining us for mini-episode number 1129 of the FDH Lounge. As we bring the show to a close, we would like to extend our deepest gratitude to NBC, CBS, ABC, Fox, All Clear Channel Affiliates, TNT, TBS, USA, UPN, Deadspin.com, YouTube.com, YTMND.com, MySpace.com, various blogs, Fox News, CNN, CNBC, MSNBC, IamBoard.com, Billboard.com, Google.com, ESPN, ESPN2, ESPN News, ESPN Classic, NBA TV, NFL Network, Sports Time Ohio. Athlon Magazine, Comedy Central, Cartoon Network, The Boomerang Channel, QVC, BET, The Spice Channel, Steno Notebooks, Manwich, Papermate Office Supplies, Waitresses, Strippers, Bartenders, Garbage Men, Janitors, Microwave Popcorn, The Writers of The Office, Scrubs, Entourage, My Name is Earl, Oz, Metalocalypse and the Boondocks, Aquafina, and The Periodic Table of Elements. 